Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Let's uh, turn our attention now to the world of international trade with Robert Lawrence. He is professor of international trade and investment at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He's also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's also a former economic advisor to President Bill Clinton, joining us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1200. Robert Lawrence, how are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. All right. So what, you know, if you were going to be a trade uh, advisor uh, to uh, foreign governments, particularly China right now, what would you be telling them about the direction of U.S. trade policy? Well, I, I tell them that uh, they have to take uh, President Trump uh, very seriously because um, although you need the Congress to approve trade agreements unilaterally on his own, the president has the executive power to withdraw uh, from trade agreements that the United States has signed. So um, I do think they have to take him, his, his, uh, his threat seriously, although it's still, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty as to exactly what he intends to do. Uh, Professor Lawrence, there's a lot of discussion about TPP and NAFTA. When we talk about TPP, uh, which provisions are sort of most important to highlight to understand what the substance of this would mean and kind of how this would affect specific uh, trade relationships with specific countries? Well, uh, TPP is uh, is now basically dead because um, the U.S. is not going to participate in it, uh, and there is not going to be no vote uh, in this Congress. But the uh, uh, the basic idea of TPP was uh, to have um, very uh, deep connections and to facilitate international trade among 12, 12 countries. The most important for us would have been Japan. Um, there, uh, the uh, the provisions uh, eventually uh, would have uh, implemented free trade uh, in goods and in many uh, services, and also facilitated uh, investment by firms, uh, of, by U.S. firms abroad and foreign firms in the United States. Uh, Professor Lawrence, I just uh, sorry, uh, Lisa. I just want to keep focused for a second on China for just a, a moment here, because you know China uh, is attending obviously the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit that's taking place in uh, in Lima, uh, Peru. Um, is there a chance that China will become the most obvious and dominant economic power? when it comes to global trade? Because they've also moved to do international transactions in Yuan, in Remimbi, and we've got a counterweight to the World Bank and perhaps even in the International Monetary Fund. Yes, yeah, so in addition to all those other institutions which China has founded and is now taking a leadership role, uh, what the failure of uh, passing TPP will mean is basically that uh, the Asian economies uh, will be increasingly relying on tr China for leadership uh, in the trading system. There's a lot of disenchantment with globalization in uh, Europe, and we've seen Brexit, and now we see it in the United States. But that's not true of the Asians. And uh, many of those countries in TPP uh, showed a willingness to uh, open their economies to each other, and uh, they will uh, continue, I believe, to pursue free trade agreements. Uh, but now, 
these are going to be under the aegis of, of China, who was originally excluded from our TPP. Uh, but they've already launched uh, massive negotiations uh, uh, called RCEP, uh, where India, China, and other Asian economies are going to liberalize their trade and investment. Does that mean that they're going to charge tariffs on goods coming from the U.S.? Precisely. American goods, they'll lower their tariffs against uh, their own goods, on their own goods, and so, uh, but American goods are going to face higher tariffs. So when we try to sell in Japan, for instance, it's likely we'll have to, our goods will uh, have high tariffs on them, whereas uh, other Asian products won't have to pay the tariffs. So there's some news that just came in this morning that Senate Democrats elected New York Senator Chuck Schumer to be minority leader. I believe that he has been uh, pro these trade agreements. Um, is there any chance that some of the aspects of the now dead TPP uh, could be salvaged? Well, I, I, I doubt it um, because it is, uh, it, it's a very extensive package and uh, lots of parts depended on other parts. In other words, some countries made concessions uh, in some areas, but they were looking for concessions uh, uh, reciprocally. And I think um, a lot of them were motivated by uh, uh, improved entry into the U.S. marketplace. And so we drove that negotiation. Uh, it's going to be very difficult, I think, just to take uh, to pick and choose certain parts of the agreement. Robert Lawrence, would you be, uh, say that there is going to be a trade war between the United States and other countries? Well, I I think before we get to the war, what we're going to have is a huge amount of uncertainty. You know, we have our economy, say, and the Mexican economy are intertwined. Products. Uh, final products uh, are made up of components from both sides of the border. And if you're a firm on either side of the border, you have a great deal of uncertainty as to what are the rules of the game going to be. And the result is we're going to see a depression in uh, investments on both sides of the border. So I think it's so that's the first phase is going to be a huge amount of uncertainty. Uh, if we do enter into negotiations, uh, it's possible that we could uh, withdraw from, from NAFTA. Uh, we would raise tariffs on Mexican products. They would raise tariffs on our products. Now, ironically, the peso is weakened considerably. So actually, the greatest manipulator of exchange rates today, the, 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 the process that's weakening foreign currencies and strengthening the U.S. dollar, are uh, the prospect of, 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 uh, of a trade war. So uh, if China does sort of take the lead in Asia and there is more free trade in that region, how big of a hit could the U.S. economy take as a result? Well, I think it could be, it could be very damaging. There are um, estimates, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, the trade war um, uh, requires a lot of imagination. How, what, do we, what measures do we take? Uh, what measures do they take? I think there's just a, a fundamental lack of appreciation of the degree, as I said, to which we have, uh, we're part of global supply chains. Two-thirds of all of our imports are not finished products. And so when we impose tariffs on those imports, we're going to hurt production in the United States. So I think there will be a hit from that um, in general. Uh, what people are looking at is, is a weakening of the U.S. economy from the trade side. Right with a hope that the infrastructure spending and the tax cuts will offset them.
Robert Lawrence, thank you so much for being with us. Robert Lawrence, Professor of International Trade and Investment at the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. This is Bloomberg. All right, let's turn our attention now to the oil industry. NYMEX crude is up about a half a percent right now. Taking a look at oil, we've got Javier Blas. He is the chief energy correspondent for Bloomberg, and he joins us from London. Javier, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us a little bit about the context of oil trading right now. Is everyone waiting for that OPEC meeting? Everyone is uh, waiting for the OPEC meeting November the 30th, but also looking at the diplomatic activity that the uh, oil group is uh, displaying this week. We are going to have several oil ministers, including the minister from Saudi Arabia, in an uh, event in Doha, Qatar, uh, having informal discussions ahead of that meeting. And uh, what we are gathering now is a big effort over the last uh, three days and continuing over the next 10 days to try to reach an agreement. It really seems that OPEC is trying hard to get all the ministers talking to each other and trying to bridge the differences. But still, as we are today, there is no deal to reduce production and try to increase prices. How has Donald Trump's election as the next U.S. president affected the dynamic here? I mean, he said some uh, some some negative things about the U.S.'s agreement with Iran and and possibly uh, has raised the specter of, of further sanctions. I mean, does this does this play into the negotiations at all? I think that it plays at least on the on the psychological background of the negotiations. For sure, the Iranian negotiation is going to be thinking what is going to be coming next year in terms of oil uh, oil sanctions from the United States and whether their hand is weaker or stronger with Trump in in the White House. I have been talking to traders. There are many different uh, views about what this could make for the Iranians or for the Iranian uh, negotiation position. But certainly, it looks like uh, more oil coming from Iraq is going to be more difficult next year. But also the other big problem for OPEC is that Trump has talked about uh, U.S. oil independence, a big support for the domestic oil industry, and that could be a source of competition for OPEC. So if you are OPEC, you can think now, do we cut production increase prices used as a new president who is friendlier to the domestic U.S. industry uh, is, is coming because what you could do is basically bankroll the shale producers in the United States. So certainly it, it changed completely the dynamics uh, within OPEC, both internal negotiations, the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but also the, the view of the group of what is happening in the United States. Well, Javier, let's stay in the United States for just a moment and uh, give us uh, your thoughts on in increased activity in construction of pipelines, for example, the Keystone XL pipeline. Well, we probably are going to see uh, the new the president-elect Donald Trump uh, green line uh, new pipelines that could mean uh, more Canadian crude oil coming into the market in the next few years. Uh, it could mean also that uh, U.S. shale producers enjoy better prices because they can easily sell their crude oil without having to rely on trains and trucks to move the, the crude. So in general, more pipelines and a presidency of Donald Trump means higher production 
production from Canada and higher production from the United States. But this will take time. A pipeline doesn't build overnight, and uh, production uh, decisions are not made overnight. So we are talking about probably 2018, the earliest, where we are going to see impact, and probably is more a question of 2019. So uh, we, we're talking about the supply side. What about the demand side? I mean, it seems like people are thinking that perhaps uh, demand for oil will increase as there is less emphasis on environmental uh, regulations and, and carbon caps. It could be very well be the case for the United States, uh, but uh, also a, a Donald Trump presidency, particularly some of his promises on trade come through, are particularly negative for China, India, and other emerging countries. Those are the countries that they are the real engine of global oil demand. That's, that's where uh, drivers are buying new cars. That's where uh, motorcycles are being added to the, to the roads every day. So if a, uh, it's a, a Trump presidency means a lower economic growth in emerging countries in general, General, that's very negative for oil for oil demand. Yes, there will be a positive in the United States that probably less regulation could mean uh, a healthier or a more stronger uh, increase in oil demand. But certainly, China and India are the big the big the big worries here. Javier, could this also be reflected in changes to the standards for miles per gallon for U.S. automakers if indeed they are at least uh, repealed or held to current levels? Will that affect people's driving habits and therefore the use of gasoline? It could be very well, and what we are seeing already is that uh, the, the lowest gasoline prices in the United States in 12 years, this driving season during the summer holidays, uh, U.S. drivers enjoy the lowest prices. Uh, we have to go back to the early 2000s to find lower prices. That is meaning that actually the drivers are buying a lot of larger cars. Uh, the, the share of SUVs in total sales of passenger cars have increased to about 60%. And that is contrary to what the government was predicting that it was more or less around 40%. So the decisions that uh, the U.S. consumers are already taking are moving us into that direction of larger cars and even the SUVs of today are a lot more efficient than they were 10 years ago. That's meaning that the uh, MPG uh, rate, it's flatlining and it's actually decreasing contrary to what the Obama administration was trying to achieve. Javier Blas, thank you so much for joining us. Javier Blas, chief energy correspondent for London, uh, for uh, Bloomberg, coming to us from London. All right, we want uh, Lowell Yura to put his knowledge to work. He is the head of multi-asset solutions at BMO Global Asset Management, where he helps uh, oversee $233 billion. BMO, you're the name, you're the word. All right, Lowell, tell us, have you told clients they should change anything in their investment allocation? No, we haven't. In fact, um, we're looking at an environment that, is um, very well set up for further upside in equities, particularly uh, in the U.S. The one area that we've been very cautious about, and the one area that this election in the U.S. has uh, taken folks' eyes off the ball on is with what's going on in Europe. And so we've all been focused on the U.S. election, and what we've been ignoring and we think are potentially bigger risks are the elections going on in Europe, and starting with the Italian referendum in December, then moving into the first quarter, you've got the Dutch elections, the French elections, and the big election 
next year to watch is what goes on with Angela Merkel in Germany. And those could rewrite the playbook in Europe. I, wa- I want to get to uh, Europe in a second, but I want to just press you a little bit on what you're talking about with uh, stocks, particularly U.S. stocks. One of the big argument for why stocks were rallying is that bond yields were so low and benchmark rates were so low uh, that there was no alternative. People were going into stocks for dividends and they were considering them a proxy almost for bonds because at least you were getting more income from the dividends than you were from uh, some benchmark bonds. That's going away as bond yields rise. Isn't that going to be a big effect? We don't think so. Um, if you look at just the fundamentals and the valuations, you know, you could argue that U.S. equities are a bit expensive, but history would show us that at the levels they're trading at today, historically you still get pretty decent returns out of equities. Now, we might not be talking about the 9% returns that investors have been used to over the last 30 years, but a 5 to 6% return out of equities should be very good in the context of low bond yields still, and potentially higher bond yields moving higher. Could you just explain, you said earlier that you think that stocks are poised for another leg up. Why is that? Well, you've got a couple of things. You've got a, um environment that is going to be um, a supportive of growth. So some of the policies that are trickling to the top uh, that, are, that Obama or, or Trump is focusing on uh, that are supportive to growth are uh, tax policy, uh, l- less regulation, um, and greater fiscal spending. And those are very strong supporters to potentially top-line growth, which has been missing throughout this entire recovery. So those are really good drivers of further growth. Um, so let, let's go. Let's go back now to what you were talking about with Europe, because uh, certainly within the bond world, we're hearing a lot of concern about Italy, and you're seeing uh, yields on Italian and, and Portuguese bonds rise considerably, uh, just in preparation for what is to come. How will investors in the U.S. feel the effects of some of these elections if, say, uh, the Italian voters do vote no on the referendum, or you know, if Angela Merkel is not uh, anymore the president or the uh, the, the uh, head of, of Germany? Well, you don't have to look too far back to get a sense as to how problems in Europe have manifested in U.S. equity. So go back to the summers of 2013, go back to the summers where we debated about uh, uh, what was going to happen with Greece. So specific to the Italian elections, you've got a situation here with a lot of the progress that's been made with uh, fixing the Italian banks gets thrown, turned on its head, and that could put further scare into the election, as I mentioned earlier, coming up. And you might have this situation where the euro which many have been calling, and we might agree under this march that we're taking here from these elections, really gets called into question is the sustainability of euro, and the unwinding of that will cause chaos that will be definitely felt in the United States. Well, Lowell, you know, I was just to take your three points, right? Regulation. You say, okay, uh, a rollback of regulations. Well, if those regulations were put in place after the debacle of 2008, 2000, uh, the 2008 recession, you could argue that not having those regulations may have contributed to that debacle. Plus, you talk about uh, tax uh, uh, policy. Uh, there's no real indication about where the extra revenue is going to come from in order to pay for any of this. And then you said stimulus. That kind of combines with tax policy. How are we going to afford this? Yeah, and I think that's where I think we need to watch where um, the potential for threading the needle, where you can – 
provide enough infrastructure spending without alienating the far-right Tea Party folks that have been, you know, advocating for balanced budgets and unwilling. Well, never mind. Then the bond vigilantes, Well, right? People in the bond market. We saw that just recently. Bond yields increasing. People don't want to hold those bonds. Well, certain people don't want to hold those bonds. Don't forget how many investors want to hold U.S. Treasuries. So you've got foreign buyers of Treasuries that look at these yields and say they're very attractive. You've got pension plans that have been waiting for years for yields to move up so they can immunize their liabilities. And so you've got a lot of buyers that will naturally come into the market as yields go higher. Kind but of won't that hurt stocks? Not necessarily, because they're not rotating necessarily massively out of stocks. Although, you know, what you were talking about in Europe, should the euro unravel, the dollar will become even more of a haven trade, right? Perhaps. You know, I think, you know, as we've seen in this situation, the yen is becoming the, the safe haven trade and potentially the Swissy becomes the safe haven trade. But but my point being that this could even support another leg up in the dollar, um, you know, strengthening against other uh, comparable currencies. And couldn't that slow growth and, and sort of add uh, a drag effect to uh, U.S. stocks? It could. But let's look back at periods where we've had a strong dollar before, <clears throat> where stocks have done very, very well. So if you go back to the 1990s, where the dollar had this regime change and a large move up, U.S. equities outperformed non-U.S. equities significantly. And so... We don't want to get too caught into these, you know, rules of thumb where a strong dollar is all of a sudden 100% bad for stocks. If you have a strong dollar with growth and potential, a wild card of potentially productivity gains, this could be a very good environment for stocks. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens, right? I mean, that's the the key thing. But you say right now, no change. Don't don't uh, don't do anything drastic to your portfolio. Don't change your asset allocation. And you're yeah. you're in good company. A lot of people are saying the same thing. It's hard to sort of make concrete moves based on a lot of speculation. Lowell, you're a head of multi-asset solutions at BMO Global Asset Management, which oversees two hundred thirty-three billion dollars. Luckily, he is in Chicago and can avoid the gridlock that we are seeing in Midtown Manhattan uh, around the Trump Tower. So uh, we wish you a safe travel back to Chicago. We are starting to have a sense of what we can imagine from uh, the Senate. Uh, Senate Republicans reelected Mitch McConnell of Kentucky on Wednesday to be a majority leader next year. Also, the Democrats uh, selected Chuck Schumer, a New York uh, State Democrat, uh, to be the most powerful Democrat in the Senate. Um, I want to bring in Mark Niquette of Bloomberg Politics team here. And um, Mark, what do these appointments tell us about the direction? Are these, is anything surprising, particularly with Chuck Schumer's uh, uh, coming in and replacing the former leadership? No, I think this was sort of what was expected to happen. You know, certainly we thought the Republican leadership wouldn't change. And, you know, there were signs, you know, with Harry Reid leaving that uh, Chuck Schumer was in line to become minority leader and majority leader, actually, if uh, the Democrats had managed to take control of the, the Senate during the elections. Mark, tell us a little bit about who is vying for various spots in a Trump administration. Well, we're hearing all kinds of names being floated about, and maybe the, one of the most interesting ones is uh, Ted Cruz, the Texas senator who competed hard, obviously, for the presidential nomination against Trump. And, you know, um, you know, with, with Trump 
you know, calling him lying Ted constantly. And, you know, Cruz, uh, the last day uh, of his campaign actually was, was in Indiana, and I was there, and he essentially had this press conference where he, you know, claimed that he would, you know, the, the civilization as we know it would end if they uh, nominated Trump and vowed never to support him. Well, now he's being considered, we're told, for uh, attorney general possibly, and his name has also been thrown out as a potential Supreme Court appointment. So we're seeing a lot of people sort of, you know, work their way through Trump Tower during this uh, vetting process as they're deciding on names. And, you know, it's a little unclear at this point who's actually being seriously considered and, and who's just being sort of trotted out there in front of the reporters. Um, Mark, you know, I've read a bunch of stories about sort of the push-pull between people who are saying uh, we're established people in Washington, D.C., and we don't want to serve in the Trump administration, and others saying uh, we're established people in, in D.C., and, and we think it's important to serve uh, in the Trump administration, regardless of what we think about um, some of what he said on the campaign trail. Uh, what do you hear from people as far as the vast majority of people who are uh, longtime Washington operatives and whether or not they're willing to serve? Well, there's a, sometimes there's just a fundamental, um, um, you know, p- contention between wanting to have a job and, you know, be involved in the administration and sort of the principles, you know, like you said, of, of maybe in the past saying you would never serve with a Trump or you can't fathom, you know, some of his policies. So I think what, what we're seeing going on, frankly, is, you know, some folks thinking about, well, do I want to be have a seat at the table with this new administration, even if I have reservations, or are my objections to the policies or the proposals or the, you know, the, the presidency itself of Donald Trump just so disqualifying I can't even consider consider serving. Mark, uh, is it uh, a foregone conclusion that Republicans will rubber stamp whatever Donald Trump wants in terms of people and policies? Not at all. Just like we're, we're sort of unsure and certain about, you know, who Donald Trump will actually end up appointing to some of these key positions. You know, there's no, it's not a foregone conclusion. They'll all get a smooth sail and through confirmation in the Senate. Um, you know, the, the margin is still pretty narrow. Uh, Republicans only have a 52-48 edge uh, in um, uh, control of the Senate. And, you know, we, you know, assume the Democrats, you know, don't go along. We don't know exactly how they're going to play all these individual appointments. We have Republicans who have not been enamored of Trump and, you know, have outright opposed him during the, the primary, the nominating process, um, and have already been on record uh, um, saying they might not support some of the names that are being floated. Rand Paul, for example, the, the Kentucky senator, said that if, you know, former Ambassador John Bolton or former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani get tapped as Secretary of State, you know, he can't go along with that. So the question will be, how much, how united are both the Republicans and the Democrats on various appointments? And, and you know, if we see you know, the willingness of either Democrats to break ranks or, you know, Republicans who just can't go along, we might have some some nasty fights for confirmation. So at this point, I mean, normally when a new uh, president-elect starts preparing for his administration, uh, are there basic sort of uh, mundane aspects of how the government operates that he needs to get in order before he uh, takes the oath in January? Yes, and there's also certain sort of, you know, key you know, almost routine um, procedures for the transfer of power. You know, for example, there's um, a non-disclosure agreement that the incoming folks and the current administration sign just so that the inner workings of government aren't exposed while information is being shared to the incoming administration and teams are being put together. Well, we're told that was not signed uh, until last night, essentially, that, you know, we had the shakeup in the transition team for Donald Trump where Chris Christie was shown the door in, in, uh, on Friday 
Friday and Mike Pence came in. Well, apparently nobody signed this letter until yesterday with Mike Pence heading the transition. So consequently, we lost, you know, three or four days there where information was not shared from the administration side to the uh, incoming Trump teams looking at key areas like foreign um, relations and, you know, even internal, you know, agency type uh, information. Um, So it's been, you know, probably the most charitable word to to describe the, the transition so far has been chaotic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.